James and John desire the best seat, which is next to Jesus, in his glory no less, one on his right and one on his left. James and John sound a bit arrogant and self-serving, seeking privilege, honor, and status, which is often how this text is interpreted. And there is certainly no lack of that kind of behavior in the world. We've all seen it in others, and if we are honest, we've seen it in ourselves. Perhaps the usual interpretation and subsequent judgment is more, a, more of a statement about our own motives than that of James and John. Perhaps it explains why the other ten are so upset. However, I feel there is more to this story than the, than the usual interpretation. When I was a little boy, and I was in the car with my mamma, I always wanted to sit on the armrest. I thought it was the best seat. It was elevated, plus I was close to her. In elementary school, I wanted to sit next to my best friend, Matt, which wasn't always easy if the teacher sat us alphabetically. Matt's last name was a B, and my last name is a W. Whenever I am forced to attend a clergy event, highlighting, underscoring, forced, I always want to sit next to Grayson or John Keeney. I feel safer with them. We all have those people in our lives that attract and draw us to them. Their lives speak to us of love and friendship. They show us something about ourselves that we cannot see. Their presence changes who we are. They call from us the best part of who we are. In them, close to them, we catch a glimpse of something holy, something meaningful, something that gives us life. We want to be as close as we can. We want to be next to them, not because of who we are, but because of who they are. I believe that's what James and John have experienced with Jesus. For them, it began at the Sea of Galilee. They caught a glimpse of something in and about Jesus that allowed them to leave their boat, their nets, and their father. They, along with Peter, would become the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. They were the ones permitted to see Jairus' daughter restored to life. They were the ones Jesus took up on the mountain to witness his transfiguration. They have seen things the others did not. They were invited in when the others were not. All along the way, James and John have had a different experience of and relationship with Jesus. They have seen in Jesus something no one else could show them. How could they now not ask to sit next to him in his glory. They are not asking for their own glory, but his glory. They are only asking for what they have caught a glimpse of. They have no desire to lose their life, the life they have experienced with him. Honestly, I don't see fault in their desire. In fact, I understand their desire. 
I believe there are moments like that for all of us. Those moments when we absolutely get it. Those times when we have glimpsed the beauty, the presence, and the holiness of Christ in our own lives. Everything about our life and world feels different, clearer, better, and possible. Those are the moments we say, grant us to set at your side in your glory. It is not a plea for privilege and entitlement. It is not about status. It is a plea of one who never wants to lose that glimpse, that feeling, that possibility. One who never wants the moment to end. I imagine you have known such a moment. Ultimately, this is the moment of decision. Are we willing to drink the cup that Jesus drinks? Are we willing to be baptized with the baptism with which he is baptized? With those questions, Jesus is drawing James and John deeper into their own experience of him. He is both affirming and holding them accountable for what they ask. One does not share in Christ's glory if one does not share in his life. And his life includes his suffering and his death. You see, glory is not a thing to be had. It is not a thing to be possessed. Glory is lived. Further, it is not an escape from this world, but a deeper engagement of this world. And to all of this, James and John say, we are able. I wonder, what would you say? Are you able? The other ten disciples do not get it. They are angry and annoyed at James and John. But it's not really about James and John. They're angry and annoyed, I believe, with themselves, with their inability to see and experience what James and John have seen and experienced. At a deeper level, their anger illustrates, I believe, their own longing and desire for what James and John have glimpsed. They want to say, we are able, but they are not, at least not now. Not yet. I've known times like that in my own life when I was not able. And I've known that anger. In the United Methodist Church, as a candidate, one is always asked to share one's call story. What is your call story? And honestly, it's an impossible question to answer. I feel. And I feel it's an impossible question to answer because so often it feels as though the answer must involve the voice of God, some celestial light, some impossible physical encounter with God. And I've never had such a moment. I've heard others express their own call story that includes light and the voice of God but I have not. And as I've went on my own path, 
what I have come to understand is that although my call story does not include a voice or a light or anything divine necessarily, I do possess gifts of ministry. However, it does not negate the fact that it angers me each time I hear someone tell of their call story, their divine, magical call story. You see, there are times when the darkness is thick and desperation is deep. Our world is turned upside down. We've lost our place. We set all by ourselves. Not only do we not know what we believe about God, sometimes we don't know if we even believe in God. It's easy in those moments to be angry with and jealous of those who seem to get it. Why them? Why not me? Where's my seat? Where's my voice from heaven? Where's my divine light? Of course, Jesus does not allow the ten to set by themselves. He calls them. He permits no separation between the ten and James and John. Regardless of where the ten are on their journey, their experiences, their questions, their struggles, they are to walk the same path. Their journey is together. They are all to be servants of one another and slaves of all. They stand as one body of disciples, walking one path. They follow one Lord. I find their solidarity profound and hopeful. In a poignant reminder to be gentle, to be gentle with ourselves and to be gentle with others who struggle to find their way in the world, who struggle to find their way in faith. Taken together, I believe the 12 represent and describe our lives, our faith, and our experience with Christ. We know James and John, and we know the 10. We can see ourselves in them. I wonder today, who are you? Are you James and John, or are you the 10? The truth is, both live within us. Our experience of one does not preclude an experience of the other. Don't forget James and John, the ones who get it now, were also the ones who fell asleep at Gethsemane while Jesus prayed. Not the best moment. We are the ten and we are James and John. Sometimes we catch a glimpse. Other times we can only long to catch a glimpse. Sometimes we can drink from his cup and sometimes his cup is too heavy. Sometimes we can swim in the waters of his baptism, and sometimes the waters are too deep. It's all, though, a part of the journey. And no matter where you are, the life of Christ is offered to you. And a place is always prepared for you. Thanks be to God. Amen.